Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are very excited to start a brand new series on the genealogies of the Bible. We are also thrilled to be having a new guest on the show, James Bajon. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James Bajon will discuss the genealogies in general and give an overview of why they are important to study and understand. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to remind you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. There's a link there in the show notes for you to do just that. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James Bajon, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the genealogies of Scripture. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is keeping us on track and making sure that uh, this podcast gets edited and distributed. Uh, We're very excited today to start a new series. Uh, We're starting a series on biblical genealogies, and to help us sort through the issues concerning genealogies, we've invited another guest to join us for this series. Uh, This is James B. John. Uh, James is uh, in the United Kingdom, splits his time between London and uh, Cambridge. Uh, And we're really excited to have James on. James has written a few things for the Theopolis website. Uh, He also has written a number of papers that are available on academia.com. And uh, he he has a a, a kind of an astonishing Twitter feed where he does very uh, intricate biblical analysis in Twitter threads, which is... uh, which is a, 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 a spiritual gift of its very own. Um, but J- James, since you're, since you're here for the first time, I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our audience, explain what you're doing, uh, and what your, particularly what your interests are in, uh, in your biblical work. Sure. I mean, I am based at um, uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge at the moment. So that's a, a centre of biblical research. Lots of people there uh, studying the text of scripture very seriously and i'm particularly involved with a team there who are studying names in the biblical and the extra biblical world so part of that will be the meanings of names that will obviously overlap with genealogies and the geography of the ancient near east and and so forth and um yeah and and that's um so names and genealogies is is a big part of all that and did I uh, see that you've also worked on, are working on a commentary on Daniel? Is that uh, is that underway or finished? Um, it's on pause at the moment. Um, yeah, it's on pause. Is, is that because you got to a point where you didn't know what was going on in Daniel or you had other things come up and uh, interrupt um, you? Both of those things have happened. <laughs> um, at the moment, it's time constraints. Yeah. And you, you also work in, in London at the uh, Bank of England. Yep. So... My um, research, my work there is mainly uh, computational and mathematical, so it's large, uh, working with large data sets, which might have some overlap with names because we've got some big data to handle there uh, as well. Right. So your your training and background to this point has been in in that data data uh, entry and uh, doing biblical studies on the side, but you're hoping that the biblical studies will be the the future your future vocation. Yeah, I'm praying that that will be the case. Yep. Well, we'll uh, 
we'll join you in those prayers. Um, I've really benefited and been excited by the work you've been doing. So it's really a delight to have you join us for this series. And given the work you're doing at Tyndale currently, uh, this is uh, you're well suited to join us for this particular uh, course of study in this particular series. So welcome uh, yeah. and uh, look forward to having you as part of the discussion. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, as I said, we're doing a series on uh, biblical genealogies. We're planning to do this for the next several months, and we're going to be looking in some detail at particular sections of the Bible that do with, deal with genealogies. Uh, Alistair suggested this topic, and it seemed like a suitable topic for a Theopolis podcast. As uh, Jim Jordan like, likes to say, uh, he's specialized and spent his lifetime specializing in the, in the weird, weird parts of the Bible. Jim is able to, uh, he's, got a, he's got a nose for the weird parts, and he, he's able to find weird things almost everywhere in the Bible. Uh, but he's taught all of us to pay attention to the things that are, we, we tend to overlook. Chronology, Jim has spent a lot of time over the years studying biblical chronology. Names and genealogies are another sometimes overlooked portion of the Bible, and often treated as secondary, questionable historical value, uh, not really particularly important theologically, and the genealogies have been kind of marginalized in a lot of modern biblical studies and modern theology. But by doing that, if we were to ignore the genealogies, we're ignoring a large chunks of Scripture. Uh, there are long sections of the book of Genesis that are genealogical tables of one sort or another. In fact, it, it, you, could, you could see the whole book of Genesis as a kind of tabulation or compilation of genealogies. Uh, the, the book is organized by the phrase, these are the generations of, which sometimes introduce a genealogy, sometimes introduce a narrative section, but they, they're introduced with this kind of genealogical label. There's a portion of Exodus that's genealogical. Several chapters, the opening chapters of First Chronicles are ge mostly genealogy, uh, and a couple of chapters of the Gospels are genealogy. So there's a, uh, this, is, this is something that runs through the entire, entirety of the Old Testament and into the Gospels. Uh, and really forms the backbone of the his history that we're being presented, that's being presented in the Old Testament and into the Gospels. And if we're ignoring or marginalizing those, then we're really marginalizing these significant sections of Scripture. So um, that's we want to focus attention on those because we think there, there's some important things to mine out of the genealogies. And because that they're just given the sheer bulk of the material, this is something God want us, wants us to. Uh, investigate, wants us to wrestle with, wants us to think about, uh, and this is part of his communication of his will to us. Peter, just to highlight what you just said about um, the importance of the genealogies and the, the uh, way they're distributed all through the Bible, uh, the common lectionary, the revised common lectionary, has no readings, no genealogical readings at all, not even Matthew 1. Um, and, uh, you know, using the revised common lecture over the last 20 years or so, off and on at least, that's been rather striking. And, uh, you know, w there's all sorts of critiques of the lectionary. It doesn't have a lot of things like the vengeance and um, census, architectural design, all those kinds of things. But you almost get the idea that, that uh, the genealogies are inadequate bearers of the divine word, uh, even though they do have canonical status. You mentioned the fact that throughout the Old Testament, there are these common themes of genealogies, particularly in somewhere like the book of Genesis or First Chronicles, and that that continues into the New. But 
the way it continues into the new is perhaps quite arresting in itself, that the very first part of the New Testament is genealogical, that Jesus is introduced to us in the context of a genealogy. And throughout the Old Testament, I think, as we look at the genealogies more closely, we'll see that within them there is deep theological art in the way that they are put together to highlight certain details, to juxtapose certain characters, to give us a sense of um, progression and of climax, um, working towards particular figures or certain patterns that are repeated, um, the 10-generation pattern that you see at certain points. And here I think it can be helpful to remember that although as modern people we're used to having myriads of different texts and we are primarily reading texts on a single occasion just to get the most obvious pieces of information out of them, when we're reading scripture we're reading texts that belong in society where there were very few texts and the signal to noise ratio in such texts was very high. And if you're reading a genealogy, I think you should have a sense of that, that this text is not just a list of names and dates and that sort of thing, but it's a text that is theological in its import, and it helps us to understand the significance of the characters, what's taking place, and whereas the narrative that often surrounds them has an interest in names. So if we're reading in Genesis, there is often... Uh, reference to the meaning of names that's um, within the narrative itself or some connection between the names of a character and the narrative that surrounds them. We can think about Adam and his connection with the earth or Eve and her connection with life, Cain acquired from the Lord and Abel, breath or vapor. Um, these names already have connections within the immediate surroundings. But as we look a bit further and move beyond the narrative parts and into the genealogical parts, we should take those instincts to look more closely at the meanings of names and the way that those are progressing narratives um, and see that that is part of the purpose of genealogy itself, to provide a theological structure for thinking about broader patterns that are playing out. To develop that point a little bit, Alistair, it's an unusual way of reflecting history, isn't it? A a genealogy. If we're introduced to Jesus, for instance, as the um, descendant, the, the product of a long line of of people, that is obviously situating Jesus in history in a context. But it's done just by a list of names, which is probably quite unusual for us. If if we want to introduce someone as a backdrop in a novel or historical work today it's normally via painting events um, a background of what's happened various wars and international happenings and so forth but names are, are different i think it's important perhaps in a couple of ways um it focuses on people quite obviously um and it, it gives primacy to people and lives rather than events which i think is an important factor bear in mind but i also feel as if it, it somehow makes the past more present it kind of brings it through in a cumulative fashion to the person who's being introduced so if saul is introduced as uh, a gibeonite for instance it is bringing all that um the horror of the events of gibeah through or if ruth is introduced as a 
Moabite. She, she's there as a um, a product of history and a representative of a people. And I find that the genealogy kind of brings history forward and, and presents it in a person on the page of scripture. Yeah, and I think to reinforce that uh, that point, the people who are the original recipients of these genealogies are going to identify their own ancestors within those genealogies. These are not, uh, as for us, these are not uh, strange, ancient uh, family trees, but these were the family trees that people would identify with. Uh, just as, as a qualification of that, James, it is important to notice that there are, there are different kinds of genealogies in the Bible. There are some that are just lists of names. Chronicles starts out with just a, a tabulation of names for a couple of pages. But then as the genealogies of Chronicles go on, there are small narratives embedded within them. Probably the most famous of these is the, the, prayer, the story of Jabez, which uh, inspired a small book a couple of decades ago, and a small and popular book. The genealogy of Chronicles have these narratives that are that are built into the genealogy. So uh, I think your point is right that the names are being highlighted, and that means people are being highlighted. But one of the things we miss when we uh, overlook the genealogies are those little narrative snippets that can really sh- shed significant light on what's happening in the rest of the book that's, uh, that's more straightforward narrative. Don't you think also that there's something going on here, um, the scandal of particularity. There's really nothing more mundane or ordinary than a list. And it almost seems to many, especially those who are more inclined towards primacy of the intellect, uh, sorts of views of Christianity, uh, ideas, doctrines, that these lists are really not worthy. There's nothing really to mine from these lists. Um, you know, I was, think, I was thinking about this when you announced the topic, and I remembered um, uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, and all of the uh, uh, all of the overinterpretation that's going on by all the men in this book. Um, you know, this big trans historical plan, the Knights are in the Society of the Rosy Cross and Great Pyramid, Freemasons, all the stuff. And then a woman comes and uh, deconstructs it all by uh, talking about a laundry list, kind of brings you back down into reality. And so often, I think, in especially American Christianity and, you know, maybe English Christianity in general, is we reduce the Christian faith to a set of ideas and forget that it's very space-time grounded, anchored, uh, and the genealogies can keep it anchored for us so that we realize uh, that it's not just a philosophy or um, a set of ideas. James, I'm curious about uh, what you what you found in, uh, it sounds like you're doing some uh, comparative work between um, Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern names. And I, I'm, I'm curious about what you found in terms of the focus on genealogy or name lists in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Uh, I assume that it's there, but what would be, are there any significant differences between the way the Bible handles those kinds of texts and the way other ancient cultures did? I mean, at present, I'm starting with the biblical data and working outwards. So I haven't looked at it that much. The impression I get is that we have actually got far more dense genealogical data in scripture than we have in any other resources i've i've come across yet so you know in the space of abraham downwards maybe 
four or five generations, we, we can have about 80 or 90 different people, which is really quite un, unparalleled. You get little clusters um, in other data sources, but you don't get too many really large-scale uh, family trees that you can put together and so forth. Um, one thing you you do find in other sources is is patterns of names um fathers and sons or or uh, brothers and sisters who have similar types of names their names might all uh, end in a certain way or contain a um, a certain deity name in them and and so forth and we find that in the biblical data as well james are there genealogical lists in the sacred texts of other world religions? I mean, I don't know enough about it to say for sure. The ones I've come across tend to be of particularly important people, the lines of kings and, and so forth. They, but even then, it, it tends to be what we call a, a vertical genealogy, so just one person per generation set forth. There, there tends to be a lot more density in the biblical data. Um, people often make a, a distinction between what you could call horizontal or segmented genealogies, which will sort of fill out a, a family tree, versus vertical genealogy, which will sort of pick out a select line and just chart it out with a person per generation. And in theological terms, I would... I suppose, relate those to the unfolding of God's promises to fill the earth, on the one hand, the horizontal family tree, and God's particular purposes in election. And so an example of, a, of both of those contrasted might be, for instance, the Genesis 10 table of nations, which is quite filled out, filling the earth, against the backdrop of which sort of Genesis 11 picks out one line to extend the the chosen line of Abraham which is then kind of drawn forth from that tangled uh, filled out genealogy of Genesis 10 the point you made James about the the uh, genealogies being of um, prominent characters or officials kings I assume that you have genealogical tables for priests in play, in other cultures than Israel as well my suspicion, I don't know the data, but my suspicion would be that that would be a divergence. Although you do have, I mean, the, the, the genealogies of the Pentateuch culminate with Exodus 6, which is the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. So it's a, it culminates with a kind of priestly genealogy. But um, you also have genealogies of people who are, by most ancient standards, are fairly obscure characters. I mean, um, Abraham is a prince. Uh, his His family is a is wealthy and has a certain certain kind of power, but they're also sojourners in the land that they never that they never possess in the book of Genesis. Uh, they aren't kings in any uh, in any normal sense, and they certainly aren't priests in the normal sense of the ancient of an ancient priest. And yet they receive these gene this genealogical attention. The placing of genealogies within scripture is something I've often found um, worthy of closer attention. There seems to be a very decided interplay between narrative and um, genealogy. So we're introduced to someone like Joseph, the son of Jacob, 
at the beginning of Matthew, and then we're told he has dreams, and we remember Joseph, son of Jacob, from the Old Testament. But the genealogy allows us to, first of all, situate Joseph within that history, and also gives us a sense of this character as following in the lines and in the mould of someone who has come before. And the placing of that, where it is placed, also provides a theological structure for the entire book, um, ordered around key events and characters, David, Abraham, the exile in Babylon, the movement from Genesis at the beginning to um, the end of Second Chronicles at the end. We see the same thing, I think, also in Genesis, where, the, for instance, the situation of the genealogy or the chief list um, of Esau and Edom, um, that that is immediately after the birth of Benjamin, and Benjamin being the one from whom the first king will arise in Israel. And the juxtaposition of those two characters, I think, continues into the book of First Samuel. And it helps us to think not just about a list of names divorced from the narrative, but about the very fertile interplay between the two. I was thinking about this just a few days ago, looking through Genesis chapter 5, and thinking about how we can read Genesis chapter 5 against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the earth. There are 10 words of creation. There are 10 generations in chapter 5. And it ends on rest with Noah supposed to bring rest. And so it seems to me that we're supposed to read the genealogies not just as an abstraction from the narrative or something alongside um, some backwater that we go off into, that we might want to explore if we're interested, but an integral part of the narrative and the theological progression of the text that they're placed within. A really good point, Alistair. And uh, and you can see this on a couple of different levels. I like the point you make about uh, Genesis Genesis 5 in relation to the creation account. But you also can see a, a, a kind of smaller details that link the, the narratives to genealogies. And sometimes it's not a genealogy in the immediate context that provides the, the, the clue that you need. Uh, I think, uh, for example, of uh, um, you, you can go through all of First and Second Samuel, well, First Samuel, uh, when Samuel is alive. Uh, Samuel is associated with the priesthood. He grows up in the household of the high priest. He grows up in the vicinity of the tabernacle in Shiloh. Uh, but you don't have any idea uh, from Samuel that he is a Levite, that he's a part of the Levitical tribe. You don't get that until you get to the Levitical genealogy in 1 Chronicles 6. But that provides an, a, a genealogical clue that helps to read back. And you can, suddenly things are illuminated in, in Samuel that may have been a little bit obscure before. And that's one of the values of looking at the genealogies, that they, they, they make these connections between people and nations that you might not, that you wouldn't know otherwise because they're not always... Uh, they're not always detailed in the, in the larger narratives. You have to study the genealogy to make those connections. One of the things I've found just on a practical note in terms of working with the Bible's genealogies is just the need to allow Scripture to kind of define its own conventions. Um, I mean, other people may have different views on this, but it, it seems to me that genealogical data is something that can be put in a narrative and then kind of added to or even edited over time so um alistair mentioned jacob's 
genealogy, his descendants in Genesis 46, for instance. And where they're presented, it feels as if that is a, a long list of people who are going to move and migrate to Egypt along with Jacob. But if you look at it, it seems to include generations of people who, who couldn't have been born prior to the migration to Egypt, in which case I, I assume that it, it was a genealogy which was put there and was then expanded as and when new people were born. And as I understand it, the, the Bible is just happy with that as a convention. It, it doesn't feel the need to add all sorts of caveats as to uh, to help us understand it, but just to uh, let it speak for itself. And on that particular example, I think we've discussed this before, there is um, the inclusion of particular figures and the ordering of particular figures with a numerological structure in mind. We're supposed to recognize that these characters um, are probably, you include certain grandchildren of one line, you don't necessarily include the grandchildren of another, but those inclusions are important for establishing a numerological structure that helps you to see the significance of particular characters that adds up to 70, that there are 14 um, direct descendants associated with uh, descendants associated with Rachel. And um, I'm trying to remember the numbers of it, but um, that there is seven associated with Bilhah and then there's 49 altogether associated with um, with Leah, if I remember correctly, 16 and then 33. Um, so you have twice as, num- as many for the wives as the handmaids. And all of that structure has a theological import to it, but um, you don't notice that until you look more closely and consider that certain things were included, certain names were included, presumably, to establish that structure so that you would see the meaning of what's taking place. So we, we can see, James, why, how your, uh, your day job and your biblical work kind of come together in this, uh, on this topic. You can, <laughs> you can play with numbers, you can play with names, and uh, yeah. doing and, and both at the results. same time. Yeah. Um, do people have any particular thoughts on, it seems to me that there are often either 12 or 13 patriarchal um, figures presented in genealogies. So Jacob's would be an, an obvious example, but then Esau's has a similar pattern with the chiefs. Um, when Ezra uh, records the people who return there, sort of the, the census is, is headed up by 12. Do, do people have thoughts on, on what's being suggested there? If I remember correctly, the same is the case for Nahor. Yeah, it was, uh, one, one thought would be that um, you're, you're looking at uh, either a kind of proto-Israel or maybe a, um, a counterfeit Israel. I'm thinking you know, Esau as the firstborn, he's uh, supplanted by J- Jacob the supplanter. Uh, but his his story is in some sense a, a foreshadowing, and his genealogy for sure is a foreshadowing of the later genealogy of Jacob. J- before Jacob has um, has that kind of family, he doesn't have any kings at all in his descent, and Esau already has kings and chiefs in his descent. 
but Jacob's going to be the one that's going to overtake and surpass him. So in that case, uh, Esau isn't playing a, I don't think he's playing a, a counterfeit Jacob role, but he's playing a kind of proto-Jacob. He's a foreshadowing what will happen. I'm, I'm thinking, this, this is not a genealogical point, but I'm thinking the, the logic is similar to what you find with uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And the way that Paul deals with Ishmael and Isaac in Galatians, uh, Ishmael being the older child of the flesh who gives way to the child of the spirit. But in, within Genesis, Ishmael's life is kind of a foreshadowing of the, the later events of the life of Isaac and his descendants. So I think that, that would be one possibility to, to think about how these characters are. Or maybe, maybe a kind of a small-scale Israel. If you have a family within Israel that uh, has a 12, uh, enumerated 12 genealogy, there's some kind of micro-Israel that's being pointed to. And, and that, if that's the case, then we, you should start looking for elaborations of that theme in the story of those families. If they're a micro-Israel, then their history should somehow mimic or foreshadow the history of Israel. I think you see that in the case of Edom or Esau, um, and also in the story of Ishmael and Isaac, that there is a sort of twinning of those characters, with Ishmael preceding um, Isaac and developing certain patterns. So in the case of Ishmael, there are 12 princes that arise from him, but those 12 princes arise a generation later for Isaac. Um, Jacob has to intervene between those and I think you see the same thing in the case of Nahor. Nahor has 12 children, eight by his wife Milcah, and then four by his um, concubine, and making 12 altogether. But he has those a generation before um, the 12 sons of, um, of, is- of Israel. A uh, more general question. Uh, anybody listening to this who's maybe not a Bible scholar or a pastor begins to realize how many uh, genealogies there are in the Bible all over the place. Uh, we, we've not mentioned them all, but we've mentioned a great many that most people don't maybe realize are there. And the question I have is, how and how are um, genealogies possibly misused? You know, when you get into the New Testament, the, the Jews, especially the leaders and the scribes, are misusing the genealogies in some way. Jesus has to rebuke them in John 8, uh, that having Abraham as their genealogical father means nothing, in some cases worse than nothing. And then uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 1 warns against endless genealogies and speculations. Just wondering how how might we misuse, misunderstand, misapply uh, genealogies today? Well, one thing that occurs to me is the possibility of um, using genealogies in kind of an exclusive fashion. If you're not, uh, if you're not, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Except if you ain't from Abraham, you ain't much. But then, what? what one of the interesting things is that 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 use of the geneal- genealogy would be belied by the genealogy itself. And again, I go back to Chronicles. We'll get to look at these genealogies in detail later. Within Chronicles, there are several moments when Gentiles are incorporated into Israelite genealogies and actually refresh Israelite genealogies. Or the, the book of Ruth it ends with the genealogy that leads to David from Judah to David. And the reason that genealogy persists, the reason why that line continues, is because of the incorporation of Ruth and Naomi into that line. So using it in a to say that you have to have some kind of fleshly link with Abraham in order to be among the chosen people is actually 
that's actually undermined by the content of the genealogies themselves. I think a further thing is within the pastoral epistles, both in First Timothy and Titus, Paul warns against endless genealogies and spec and the way that those can often give place to a very speculative approach to scripture, where we start to pay more attention to those things in the more penumbral realm of the text, rather than the clear revelation that is at the heart of it. And so there is a time for genealogies, but there may be not the place where we should put the greatest weight of our attention. The greatest weight of our attention belongs to the clear things that have been revealed to us, whereas the area of genealogies, which can often lead to speculations, to um, entertaining myths, and to going off into other texts and um, narratives from outside of scripture, there's a danger there that we need to be aware of. In terms of the historical backdrop to some of those New Testament warnings, I've come across a a particular rabbinic text which talks about researching the purity of people's genealogical backdrop to make sure that there weren't illegitimate births and other things going on. And that text actually goes on to stipulate, I can't remember what the limit was, but there's a stipulation that no one is allowed to spend more than X hours studying genealogies per day. So there, there, there obviously was some issue with it. And I suspect it may have been the case that basically if you looked hard enough, you could always find something suspicious looking in someone's genealogy and looking at the old testament you can very much imagine that genealogies tend to be just quite messy affairs there are as peter alluded to there are times when it looks like a genealogy is going to die out and it has to be perpetuated in some strange way the way in which tamar perpetuated her line was slightly strange and many of these strange things are the backdrop to jesus's genealogies so there is that messiness but it's obviously not a messiness that defines the people who come forth from those genealogies it is just part of the way in which god works in history well the obvious question james is whether you've uh, kept yourself limited by that rabbinic rule <laughs> <laughs> i tried to find it but I, I couldn't find the original so i'm not i'm not sure what the number of hours is unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> well, keep a tally each day and you can find How out convenient. at some point. <laughs> to close down, I mean, let me reiterate something that Jeff said early on in our discussion, and that is that uh, the, one, of the, one of the important, important things and helpful things about paying attention to the genealogies is the way that it reminds us of just the character of Scripture as a historical document, and that for uh, biblical religion, you don't have this bifurcation, this, this chasm between the spiritual realities that have to do with God and his, his work and uh, the earthly mundane realities that have to do with procreation and family life and ancestry and descent. Instead, those two things are bound together and God is actually working out his purposes within the real life context of families and uh, procreation and ancestry and descent. And that's uh, getting that historical backbone to the Bible is one of the reasons why the uh, genealogies are worth paying attention to. It's a reminder of the God that we worship is the God of history who is orchestrating history to bring it to its final conclusion in a new Jerusalem. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.